Good morning. Uh, my name is Joel, if you haven't met me. If you have met me, hello. Um, I'll be speaking from God's Word today instead of Riley, as he's over at the Relay Conference with our young people. Um, and we're going to be looking at today Psalm 63. And we're going to be reading from God's Word to begin with. If you wish to have a physical Bible, there's some at the back next to the Welcome Newcomers box. And you can always use a digital copy and we'll have it up on the screen as well. So let's read Psalm 63. We read from the ESV here. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. And because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Now let's begin our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that your word is enough. It is sufficient. It is clear, authoritative, and without error. We have truth in what it says. So as we approach your word today in Psalm 63, we come ready with expectant hearts to hear from you through the Spirit. In your name, Jesus. Amen. It's never a good thing, is it, when you have a need that you, you really want filled. It needs to be filled, and it's just being insufficiently met. It just is not getting the attention it needs. Uh, so this reminds me of a time when I had this need. I, I suffer from IBS, and I was having an IBS attack. And it's this really, really painful experience where it crunches you over in your belly. This is the middle of the night, and I thought I'd do a kind thing, which was probably in hindsight a very stupid thing to do. Um, I decided to not wake Jamie and take myself to the hospital. So as I'm driving, my legs are becoming numb. I'm not joking. They were becoming numb as I'm driving. I thought, this is not good. I've got to get there soon. I was just in so much agonizing pain. And I rock up at the hospital, and um, I, I pull into the emergency spot. I didn't park my car. I was in so much pain, double over like this. And I'm yelling out, I need help. Like, I need help. And they're just ignoring me. There were some paramedics there standing, just ignoring me and looking at me weird. And I just kept yelling that out. And I was like, I need help. And I'm like, it, it sounds ridiculous. And it would have looked ridiculous. No wonder the paramedics didn't do anything. They probably thought I was high. I'm just in pain, hunched over. I've got the keys. And I 
threw them at them and said, you parked the car, I need help, I need, like, I was in that much pain, that much agonizing pain. But the paramedics, they simply say, you need to get back in your car, you need to park your car, you need to get back in your car and park your car. I got a broken record in that kind of calm tone because they think I'm high, I'm sure that's what they thought. So I have to now find my keys that I've thrown somewhere randomly in front of me. So I'm in agonizing pain, like looking for these keys. And I'm like, I was so angry as well. Like, I'm really needing some help. I'm looking around, and I find them. And I have to go into the car, start the car, and I just oh, yeah, quickly find a car spot. And then I admit myself in. And at that point, I'm, I'm really, like I'm doubled over, and they know I'm really in trouble. Um, and they quickly get me in to get some emergency help. And then I had to explain all of this to Jamie, who's wondering where I am when she wakes up and I'm not in the bed in the morning. The thing is, I was in such desperation because my need was not being fulfilled. It wasn't a want. It wasn't something that I thought was um, beneficial, that I would love to have. No, it was a need. I was in so much pain. And I knew what I needed. I needed the medical attention then right there and it wasn't being met. My need was really, really pressing hard on me. And we're gonna to see today in Psalm 63 that David is in a desperate state of need as well. He's desperately searching for that soul help, that soul medical remedying help. And we're gonna see that our satisfaction, our need, and security is found in the Lord. Because the thing is, we can try often to have our needs met in things that will not actually ultimately fill our needs. Rather than going to the source of our help, the Lord, in our time of need and our provision, instead, we turn to insufficient means of having our needs met. Or we turn to throwing the keys out and then having to find our way back to where our need can actually be resolved. It might be simple things, such as we need to go to sleep, but instead we're trolling social media, the doom scroll, and we somehow think that's going to fill our need of sleep. Or, you know, instead of having a nutritiously dense meal, we go for the quick calories, the chips, diving in again, you know, there goes that New Year's resolution. Or, you know, binge watching instead of enriching our minds by reading the scripture. Or popping pills instead of taking the necessary steps to get exercise. Or, on a more serious note, instead of coming to God in our time of need, trying to fill it with substitutes that are unable to feed our need, our soul need. We need to see that our satisfaction is found in the Lord. And this is what we're going to see as we read Psalm 63 today. We read in verses 1 this. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So this psalm, to begin with, is prefaced. As we read these words, I want to uh, give you some greater context here 
So we understand how David is using this imagery of his soul thirsting, him fainting in a dry and weary land. This is, as we read, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, when we think of the word wilderness, it evokes certain powerful mental images, doesn't it? Uncultivated, inhospitable, uninhabited land, dry, desolate. It's certainly not a place for human flourishing. And this is where David's psalm, Psalm 63 and verse 1, is couched. In this harsh setting, we find David in this wilderness. This wasn't a tree change. Somehow he just wanted to change location for a better view. This wasn't some sort of wilderness survival experience. It's because his life is in danger. He is being sought after. His life is in danger. In desperation... He is in a desolate place for his survival. And we can see also that this is married with, we'll see later on at the end of the verse, that he is king. He says, you know, but the king shall rejoice in God. He is king. Kings do not live in wildernesses. They live in palaces of security and strength from which to rule their people. So with that in mind, this is probably in the moment when David is fleeing from his son Absalom, who is pursuing him for his life. Yes, David did have a wilderness experience with Saul, but he wasn't king at that stage. This is David fleeing from his son, thrown into the wilderness. And it's in this context where David's soul need is brought to the Lord. It's here that David petitions the Lord in desperate need. He says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. It's here where he maintains his deep trust in the Lord. It's here that he vows to praise. It's here that he laments his circumstances and his need. He's not feeling God and he needs God. He's desperate for God. And David's words lead us to place our attention in the Lord, the only one who can provide our soul need. So that's the context of the psalm. And we're going to explore that through three lenses. And we're going to look at um, this psalm broken up in three sections. And the first section I want us to draw our attention to is verses 1 through to 5. Verses 1 through to 5. And we're going to be doing this under the heading, In Your Present Need... Anchor your satisfaction in God. In your present need, anchor your satisfaction in God. Let's have a read of it again. My soul, uh, um, verse 5 says, my soul will be satisfied. The starting of verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips." So as we see, this whole psalm 
begins with, and often the beginning orients us, begins with David using the, the surrounding environment, the context of his wilderness experience to drive deep images of his desperate inner state. He is desperate. His soul thirsts. It's parched. His flesh is fainting. It's weak in this dry and weary land. It's instinctual. It's an instinctual understanding that our survival is desperately dependent upon water. Desperately. And I think this is why David uses this image. His soul cannot survive without God. Without God. Like we cannot survive without water, we cannot survive without the spiritual water of God. Because a person can, an, um, a person can only survive a few days without water. Dehydration happens very quickly, um, causing extreme thirst, fatigue, and ultimately organ failure and death. As the body tries to survive, it draws any water it can from the organs and it eventually kills you. Medical news today says, uh, you know, how long can you survive without water? They say three days. That's, of course, dependent upon context. In contrast, you can survive without food upwards of 60 days. Um, I did a, a fast for 21 days in the misguided belief that it may assist with getting rid of or assisting my asthma. 21 days. And I was able to do that. All you think about is food. Um, but I was able to do that. I just drank water. It was water that helped me survive through that time. I lost 13 kilos. Yeah, that did a lot of good. Um, so the, the point is water is, is really desperate here. Water is really, really important. And that's why David uses this imagery for his desperate spiritual state. Just like a dry and weary land, where there is no water, there is no life. In this context of hopelessness, he is seeking life-giving water from his God. Only God can satisfy his soul's thirst. Only God can restore his strength. Which is a reminder to us that only our thirsty souls can find hydration in God. When we're experiencing the difficulty, again, of dealing with difficult family members who are causing us much grief, or when we're finding ourselves in a spiritual desert of seeking God but not feeling God, we can be given, we are given two options. We can either go to true water source that can feed our soul, or we can go to broken cisterns, which hold no water, trying to quench our thirst with sand. Because the desert wasteland of unrealistic expectations and empty promises cannot fill us. Only the water of God. Only God can fill us. Because you can't hydrate yourself on oil. It, it will lead to death. You can't satisfy yourself on anything else for your soul than the life-giving water of God. That's why Jesus says in the book of John, he says, everyone who drinks 
the worldly water will be thirsty again. But drinking the water of God, you will never be thirsty again. Paraphrasing there, but you will never be thirsty again. And this is why the psalmist directs his focus, his desperate need, not on military support or requests for divine intervention to crush his enemies. He directs it straight at, focusing in on the Lord. And when we look at verse 2, he says, I have looked upon you in your sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. As he knows that his only soul satisfaction can come from God himself, even though his current circumstances is bleak, even though he is desperate, he recalls, he brings to mind what God's power has already shown and done for him in his life. What God's power and glory has for his soul right now in his moment. He recalls the sanctuary. Because he's seen, even though right now he's struggling, he doesn't feel his soul being satisfied with living water and he's calling out to God for that to be filled. He's seen it in the past. He's seen God's provision in the past. He draws his mind back to seeing the sanctuary. (coughs) For the Israelites, to behold the sanctuary was the tabernacle. To see God's presence, God's dwelling, the sanctuary among them, was to remind them of their, their identity, their values and beliefs connected to God. That's why the sanctuary, as the children of Israel were moving through the wilderness, was placed in the middle of the people. It was to direct their attention to God, their life source. To gaze upon the sanctuary was to be reminded of the God who delivered the Israelites out of slavery. It was to be reminded of the God who brought them into the promised land. It was to remind them of the God who gave them the law, the constitution to live as a people holy and righteous for him. No image was to be made of God. No, nothing can represent God. But the sanctuary was a dwelling place of God. And to see it was a visible reminder that God was with his people. And that God was powerful as evidenced in the past. And he was glorified when he brought the children out of Israel. I'm sorry, he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. When he crossed over, brought them over the Red Sea. When he brought them into the promised land. So it's David, when he is reminding himself, when he says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, he is drawing that image to mind. He's reminding himself that God has not abandoned him. God is with him. It's like the apple bite in the apple. Now, you know immediately when I said that, that I'm talking about the, um, the company Apple or the, or the Golden Arches, McDonald's. They communicate something, don't they? It's their association. Likewise, the sanctuary, this image of the sanctuary, communicates that whole package of identity, beliefs, and values for the children of Israel and for David right now in his time of need. David chooses to remind himself of the power of God, the glory of God that has been witnessed in his past. He chooses to do that. He doesn't make much attention of his current desperate soul And he doesn't lament upon that in the weakness and the desperation 
in this moment. Instead, he draws his mind back in order to have strength for the present and to seek forward strength. When God has manifested his power and glory in his life in the past, he knows it will be there in the future. He uses the past to drive him forward in strength to the future. And David reminds us in our times of need, when, when we're needing or we're feeling the soul surge, not to go in our time of need to things that cannot provide, cannot fill our soul, but instead to draw our minds back to the glory and power of God manifest in our lives in the past. And one way he's done this is he has given us a modern sanctuary. That is the temple of the living God now in the new covenant, the church. When we as brothers and sisters encourage each other in the Lord, we are reminding each other of the goodness, the power and glory of God in the past. When we share those testimonies of how God has worked in our past, is working currently in our lives, this is evidence of God's manifest power and that he can satisfy your soul search because he's doing it in those around you, in the temple of the living God. Each brick, each individual here is a visible reminder that God will fulfill your soul need. We're not to limit ourselves to the gaze of the horizon of our circumstances, but we're to recall the brilliance of God's presence in the past and in his people right now to drive us forward to have our soul need met. So when your hopes and expectations for life and vitality aren't being realized, when you're feeling as though you are dry and parched, fainting, when your darkness and your grief seems to be unrelenting and burdensome, when your circumstances you know will not change in the immediate future and may not change in the future, cast your mind to the power and glory of God. Manifest in the past and in his people, the living sanctuary. And although your circumstances may remain the same, you have oriented perception that allows you to say, like David, even though David's reality hasn't changed here, he says, my lips will praise you. My lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Even though nothing has changed for him, that soul thirst remains. He's able to do that concurrently because he understands the reality of who he is in God and who God is and how he will deliver him. He will fulfill his soul's need. David has brought to mind the transcendent characteristics of God. That's why he says, your steadfast love, your power and your glory. Now, when I read this, I thought, how is it that David can say, in this moment, your love is steadfast? That means never-ending, like consistent, secure, 
When he's right now saying, I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. He's not feeling that steadfast love. How is it that he can say that and legitimately believe it, that his love is steadfast, better than life? How, is he, can, he, how can he be saying that? Well, David is able to say such words because he knows that God's steadfast love is better than life. Although he's not currently experiencing the delight in the Lord like he would like, he's not forgotten that God is steadfast in his love. It's not a subjective reality. It's not defined by David's personal experience. The remaining love of God is consistent because of who God is. His character. David can say, God's love is steadfast. God is powerful and glorious despite my situation of being in a powerless state, not having any glory of my own, despite not feeling the Lord's presence right here in my time of need, in his wilderness experience, despite being dry and barren and crying out to the Lord to quench his soul, he's in limbo, he's waiting on the Lord, he can say, your steadfast love is better than life because he knows it to be true. And he knows that God will supply every need according to the riches of his glory in time. He knows, as Psalm 34 says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. But when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord hears. And the Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Even though your reality may not have changed in your current soul need, you can simultaneously say with all integrity that the Lord's steadfast love is true. You can say that. You can concurrently say in your time of struggle, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Because like David in verse 5, if we cast our eyes to verse 5, he says, notice the forward-looking language here of will. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Although the night can seem long, and it can seem long, our soul search for satisfaction in our need will be satisfied in the Lord. Although the winter may seem as though it's dragging on and the snow is heavy upon you, spring will come. Lean not on your current situation and limit your view to the understanding of God right now. But draw back to the sanctuary Draw back to the power and glory and that his steadfast love is better than life. It is. And if you can say that, you, are, you know you are his because only someone who believes in God can say that truth 
in the midst of their suffering. That the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. A non-believer cannot say that. So hold in that strength. So we've seen in verses 1 through to 5 that in your present need, anchor your satisfaction in God. Anchor your satisfaction in God. Which leads us to the next portion, verses 6 through to 8. Verses 6 through to 8. In the Lord's protection, we're upheld. Verses 6 through to 8. In the Lord's protection, we're upheld. Recalling God and his provision in our present soul suffering secures us. Because it tethers us to the reality of who God is. Here we see that David in verse 6 remembers and meditates on God. David recognizes that in recalling to mind God's action in the past, he's assured of future hope. He is assured of the reality that God will be there. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Similarly here, David is remembering. Now the temptation for all of us is that we forget. We forget. We don't remember. And instead we go to cheap substitutes. And instead of meditating upon the goodness of God at night, instead of drawing to mind that God will be our help, we go to escapism, YouTube, procrastination, binge watching. We do the self-diagnosed remedies rather than coming back to God, rather than knowing that it's him who will be our help. Because like David, you can recall in verse 7 that the Lord has been your help in times past. For you have been my help. I think that's why testimonies are so valuable as a church community. Because we're reminded of God's delight to call people out of darkness to himself. I don't know about you, but when I hear a testimony, I'm stirred up in my soul because it reminds me of God's goodness in my life. In my life, in my past, God has redeemed me, brought me out of slavery and darkness, brought me to life. And I recall that joy when I hear someone else share a testimony of how they were brought to the Lord. But it doesn't even have to be a past testimony. It can be a testimony. We did this in G2G. I asked the parents with a whole bunch of um, our young people going around to different homes, and I asked the homes that we stopped at for the parents to share some testimonies, present testimonies of God's working in their life. And as we communicate with one another, we have present testimonies of God's goodness in our lives. Whether it be a restored relationship to someone that has been distant for a while, or whether it be God's evidence of grace in provision of a job, or the simple delight of receiving a new Bible, um, that God's 
testimonies of his people help us to recall and remember his goodness. So as we move forward in our lives, we need to be constantly drawing back to past evidences of God's grace in our lives and in those around us, the living sanctuary, the dwelling place of God in our hearts. God, God, this is what we want to remember most, that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can. So just as David, in the, in the watchness of night, night a symbol of, of darkness and danger, he knows that he will be protected in the wings of the Lord. He is protected. His soul clings, in verse 8, to the Lord. And he knows God's right hand will uplift him. And as Christians, we have this reassurance to know that Nothing else in all creation. Nothing else. This is before Paul has prattled off a whole list of saying various things that could potentially, we could think, might separate us. Death, life, etc. Angels, demons. He says, no, nothing. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is nothing. Recall that. Bring that to mind. Which leads us now to our final section looking at the psalm. Verses 9 through to 11. Verses 9 through to 11. Deliverance is found in the Lord. Deliverance is found in the Lord. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. That shall be given over to the power of the sword. That shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. From verses 2 to 8, we've seen that David has spoken of the heaven reality. Which is shaping his current difficult reality in the wilderness experience. He's meditated upon God. He's placed his foundation in security. He knows his need will be met in God. He's asserted that his protection is found in the Lord and he will be upheld. And now David, we see again, is holding these two tensions in reality. One, the reality of God, and two, his present difficulty and his sense of desperation of the felt of his need for God in his situation. He's holding both in tension. He's not compromising one or the other. As Christians, we don't have to fool ourselves. We don't have to be deluded. We can simultaneously grieve and be joyful. We can simultaneously be angry and yet not sin. We can simultaneously feel the searing pain and yet extend forgiveness to others. We hold true realities in our hands. But they're all ultimately one reality, God's reality. But from our human lived experience, we hold that reality and our lived experience in hand. So here, David, we see in verse 9, he brings it to the reality of his earthly plain experience. There are those who are seeking to destroy his life. There are those who wish to crush him. There are those that wish to see no good of him. 
He shouldn't be in the wilderness. He's a king. He's in the wilderness because someone wishes to destroy him. At this point, he could fall into despair and feel overcome. He could, he could say, no, my life will be destroyed. But he is holding on to the truth. He's holding on to those two realities. Just like we can hold on to the reality that even though we may be pressed and crushed in our present circumstances, that neither death will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. David has confidence to know that although appearances suggest that his life is at risk, not suggest, it is at risk, it is at risk. He's in a desperate need. He is in pain and agony, bent over and doubled. He knows that he places his confidence in the transcendent reality, knowing that his deliverance will be in God. That's why he says, but those who seek to destroy my life, they shall be given to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. He doesn't explain how this will happen, but what he is expressing is that the Lord is on his side. Deliverance is found in the Lord. The Lord is on his side. Although his life is endangered, although he is in a position of vulnerability, it's his enemies who will be destroyed. It's David's enemies whose position of power will have their fortunes reversed. We're not told how, but David's confidence that this will come. Which leads to the question then, well, what if, what if, say, for example, you're a persecuted Christian and your life is about to be taken from you by enemies of Christ in North Korea, say, for example, and you're standing true? How does this ring true? How can they say that those who seek to destroy their life will have their fortunes reversed and that the Lord will protect them? How? How can they say that? Because there's two realities. The end of this life is not the end of life. It's the stepping into the reality of heaven and earth being joined together at the coming of Christ. But in the meantime, being with Christ in death, knowing that nothing can separate them from the love of Christ Jesus. So too, no matter what trial or adversary you're experiencing at the moment can separate you from the love of God found through Christ. That's why you can say these bold words. Though my trial is not getting any easier, though I seem to be going down to the depths of the earth and I seem to be afflicted on all sides, I will rejoice in the King. Because my adversaries' mouths will be stopped. My suffering will come to an end at some point. My suffering, my struggle, my soul need will be satisfied in the Lord because God is my portion. That's why we read in 1 John 5 verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes this world. And this is the victory that has overcome that world, our faith. And he also goes to say in John, 1 John 5, 18, 
He who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. You are untouchable when you're in Christ. So despite the very real reality surrounding the king, despite the very real reality that might be surrounding you of grief and darkness, hold in tension the reality that God will meet your need because there's a transcendent reality. So you shall rejoice in God too. And others, notice he calls others, verse 11. The king shall rejoice in God and all who swear by him shall exult. He's encouraging others to rally around, to come and praise together. And the reason we praise together and we praise and lift one another up the goodness of God. The reason we praise as individuals is because we have that which cannot be destroyed. We have an inheritance guaranteed by the Spirit. How? Because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ on that cross. When he went through, and even though he knew that his soul would be thirsty for the Lord, even though he knew his blood would be poured out on the earth that he made, even though he knew that he would no longer be able to look upon his father's shining face in the darkness of being separated from his father because he bore our sin. He knew it was worth the cost so that he could call to himself a people who can say simultaneously in their time of need, God, I am struggling, I need your help, and yet I will praise you. You will deliver me. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. And my soul clings to you. Jesus on that cross, in his dereliction of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said those words because he chose before the foundation of the world to die for his elect so that they could never, ever experience the separation of God. That is what he has done in you. That is where you draw strength in your darkness. And if you're not yet a believer of Christ, there is no hope other than in Christ. Everything else will not fill you. You will be drinking sand. May make your belly feel full for a while, but in the end it hurts you and it will kill you. You need the living water of God. And that can only be found in Christ Jesus. Anyone who is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is the sole satisfaction. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we are now gathered, may we exalt you, may we praise you, knowing that you have done that which we could never do. You have given us water in our wilderness of sin, which we deliberately ran into. We cannot find water on our own. As much as we try, we will die there, dead and thirsty. But you have given an oasis in Jesus Christ. You have given us life. And our souls will be filled. We thank you, God, for that. Our souls are filled because of you, Jesus. And that is why we praise. 
We can praise you because you have proven true. We can praise you because you have poured out your living life so that we can have our life filled in the resurrected Christ through the Holy Spirit for the glory of the Father. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.